You're working in a family medicine practice and Alice, one of the practice's longstanding patients, comes in for pain with urinating. Alice is a 48-year-old with a history of type 1 diabetes. She feels like she is feeling the need to make urine much more often, and when she goes, there's not much, and it burns as well. She denies fever, nausea, or vomiting, and is otherwise well. She has been adhering well to her insulin regimen, and you see that her last hemoglobin A1C level was 7.6. Alice is in a stable relationship for the last 20 years with her partner, Sam. Alice says it's very uncomfortable when she voids, and is wondering if this is what a urinary tract infection feels like. She's never had one before. As you prepare to answer Alice's question, you wonder... Other than physical examination, is there any other evaluation needed before confirming the diagnosis? And how will you decide on treatment, and for how long? Consider your answers as we begin this next episode. And welcome to Audiobricks. I'm Adam Weinstein, bringing nephrology from our bricks to your ears. After completing this episode, you will be able to... 1. Define and discuss the epidemiology for cystitis and pyelonephritis. 2. Describe the clinical symptoms of a patient presenting with cystitis or pyelonephritis. 3. Summarize the microbiology, etiology, risk factors, and complications for cystitis and pyelonephritis. 4. Outline the diagnostic approach for cystitis and pyelonephritis, including the indications for laboratory and radiologic testing. And five, present the treatment options for uncomplicated cystitis, complicated cystitis, and pyelonephritis. Part one, what are cystitis and pyelonephritis? Cystitis and pyelonephritis are among the more common medical problems you will encounter in any clinical practice. Cystitis is an infection of the bladder, and pyelonephritis is an infection of the kidneys. While seemingly straightforward to distinguish, there is much overlap in presenting symptoms and risk factors. These urinary tract infections, or UTIs, may occur independently or concurrently. Pyelonephritis is generally a more serious infection and with a higher rate of complications. UTIs are much more common in women than men and may occur in all ages, though with different underlying risks in infants and toddlers, children, young adults, and older adults. In all ages, there is an increased incidence in women as compared to men, though the predominance is less marked in the very young and very old. Part 2. How do patients with cystitis or pyelonephritis present? Although cystitis and pyelonephritis are closely related, they have somewhat different presenting symptoms. Patients with cystitis will commonly present with a combination of painful urination, or dysuria, urinary frequency, and or urgency. On exam, they may have tenderness in the suprapubic region. There may be visible blood in the urine, too. Fever is often not present. You should suspect pyelonephritis if your patient has the same urinary symptoms of cystitis, plus fevers, chills, flank pain, and or nausea and or vomiting. On exam, they may have costovertebral angle tenderness. Elderly patients may sometimes also show confusion or mental status changes. And now time for a question break. What symptoms may help differentiate cystitis from pyelonephritis? Patients with cystitis are usually afebrile, 
While those with pyelonephritis most often develop fever and with chills, they may also have flank pain, nausea, and vomiting. Part 3. What is the pathophysiology of cystitis and pyelonephritis? In most patients, cystitis develops due to contamination of the urinary tract with fecal flora. These bacteria have virulence factors that enable them to ascend from the urethra into the bladder as they multiply. If these pathogens ascend further up the ureters into the kidneys, they can cause pyelonephritis. Much less commonly, pyelonephritis may occur when bacteria in the blood seed the kidneys, which is called hematogenous spread. When this occurs, it is typically associated with organisms that cause bacteremia, rather than the fecal flora per se. Pyelonephritis tends to primarily infect the renal interstitium with invasion of the renal tubules. When severe, there may be signs of renal tubular dysfunction, like impaired responsiveness to aldosterone. If pyelonephritis is not treated promptly, it can lead to scarring and fibrosis of the tubular interstitium and permanent kidney damage. The most common bacteria causing UTIs is E. coli. The close proximity of the urethra to the anus allows for easy infection by E. coli, a part of the normal fecal flora. Another cause of UTIs, especially in reproductive age women, is Staphylococcus saprophyticus, which may be a normal flora of the vaginal tract. Sexual activity can introduce bacteria into the urethra. Less common but clinically important causes of UTI include all the other normal fecal flora, including many other enteric gram-negative bacteria, as well as Enterococcus. Proteus mirabilis, Klebsiella pneumoniae, Enterobacter cloaceae, and Pseudomonas aeruginosa are associated with UTIs acquired in hospitals or nursing homes and tend to be drug-resistant. These less common organisms are also associated with UTIs in children with congenital anomalies of the urinary tract. Proteus mirabilis, Klebsiella pneumoniae, and any infection with a urease-producing organism is associated with struvite kidney stones that can obstruct the urinary tract. There are other less common causes of cystitis that do not involve bacterial infection. Hemorrhagic cystitis occurs when there is diffuse mucosal inflammation of the bladder with hemorrhage. This can be due to radiation therapy, chemotherapy drugs, most commonly cyclophosphamide and iphosphamide, and certain viruses like adenovirus or parasites. Interstitial cystitis, or bladder pain syndrome, is a condition of chronic bladder pain of unknown cause. There seems to be upregulation of pain sensation, leading to pain when the bladder fills, relieved by voiding. The condition often coexists with other chronic pain syndromes like fibromyalgia and irritable bowel syndrome. Let's review what we've covered with a question. Which bacteria is the organism associated with most cases of cystitis and pyelonephritis? E. coli causes the large majority of UTIs. Risk factors for UTIs include a female genital urinary tract, sexual activity, diabetes, and obesity. Impaired bladder emptying from any cause is another risk factor, including due to advanced age, neurogenic bladder, congenital anomalies of the urinary tract, and acquired obstructions such as an obstructing stone or prostatic hypertrophy. Having urinary hardware like indwelling urethral catheters, stents, nephrostomy tubes, or urinary diversions are also important risk factors. 
Young children are especially susceptible to UTIs, as they are fairly common in infants and toddlers, even with normal urinary tracts and without associated congenital malformations. This may be due to immature bladder control and coordination, and also the potential for them to be sitting in a dirty diaper. Even more so, congenital anomalies that impair the forward flow and excretion of urine are risk factors for UTIs in children, including vesicoureteral reflux and urinary tract obstructions. Importantly, children of toilet training age have a high incidence of UTIs, as they may develop habits of urinary or stool withholding, also known as holding in because they are busy having fun playing a game or doing something else. The more that they hold it in, the bladder distends and remains full with urine, and that can be a culture medium for an organism to divide and cause an infection. All right, question break. Why are UTIs more common in the female genitourinary tract? This genitourinary tract has a shorter urethra, which is in close proximity to the anal opening and a moist periurethral environment, increasing susceptibility to UTIs. While UTIs are very common and can generally be cured easily with proper antibiotic regimens, if left untreated or improperly treated, they can have serious complications. Pyelonephritis can progress to urosepsis, which can lead to multi-organ failure, requiring prolonged hospitalization or even resulting in death. Patients may also develop a renal abscess, a pus collection within the renal parenchyma, or a perinephric abscess, pus around the kidneys. This should be suspected if a patient being treated for pyelonephritis does not respond as expected after about three days of therapy. Untreated or improperly treated pyelonephritis can also become a chronic condition, and the kidneys develop diffuse scarring and progressive loss of kidney function. Here, thyroidization of the kidneys occur as eosin-stained casts fill the damaged and dilated tubules with a homogeneous eosinophilic material, making the parenchyma have an appearance resembling thyroid tissue. And let's review what we've just discussed with another question. What are the most common complications of UTIs? Sepsis, perinephric abscess, renal abscess, and chronic scarring and loss of kidney function are important complications of UTIs. Part 4. How do we diagnose uncomplicated cystitis and pyelonephritis? Clinical diagnosis of UTIs can be made based on history of dysuria, urinary frequency, and urgency, Urinalysis and urine culture can aid in the diagnosis and are indicated in selected cases, and radiographic studies are only needed in specific situations. Due to differences in diagnosis and therapy, we will discuss diagnosis of pyelonephritis and cystitis separately and divide cystitis into two categories, uncomplicated and complicated cystitis. Uncomplicated cystitis is the most common UTI, and we define it as occurring in patients of female sex, excluding infants and toddlers, and those who are not pregnant, have normal immune systems, no comorbidities like diabetes, and have no urologic abnormalities. Complicated cystitis includes UTIs in the male sex as well as those with female sex and either recurrent UTIs, two or more infections in six months or three or more infections in one year, urologic abnormalities, indwelling catheters, diabetes mellitus, chronic kidney disease, or an impaired immune system from, say, HIV, organ transplants, or certain medications, as well as in pregnant patients. 
The diagnosis of uncomplicated cystitis can be made by history and physical alone. Laboratory tests, including urinalysis and urine cultures, are not needed for the diagnosis. However, you may have noticed that in practice, many doctors do order these tests to confirm their diagnosis. On the other hand, for patients with complicated cystitis and pyelonephritis, a laboratory evaluation with urinalysis with reflex culture is recommended. This is also the recommendation for all infants and toddlers suspected as having a UTI. A clean-catch midstream urine sample is collected. For those not toilet-trained, a urine catheter-based collection is needed. In UTIs, the urinalysis will show a positive leukocyte esterase, indicative of pyuria, or white blood cells in the urine. Most UTIs will also show positive nitrites, indicative of gram-negative bacteria in the urine. An exception is enterococcus, which is a gram-positive bacteria, and those UTIs will be nitrite-negative. Sending the urinalysis for microscopy will show white blood cells, bacteria, and typically, but to a lesser extent, red blood cells. White blood cell casts may also be seen on microscopy of the urine in some patients with pyelonephritis. Casts only happen when there is disease within the kidney parenchyma itself. Urine culture is always done in pyelonephritis and complicated cystitis, as it can be used to help customize the antibiotic regimen and to determine resistance in recurrent UTIs or UTIs that do not respond to initial antibiotic therapy. Typically, it's ordered as a reflex urine culture, which means if the urinalysis is normal or negative, then the urine culture is not obtained. But if the urinalysis were positive, suggesting a UTI, then the urine culture is obtained. If a patient with pyelonephritis is sick enough to be admitted to the hospital, a complete blood count and blood cultures are often performed. However, blood tests are otherwise not necessary for the diagnosis and management of UTIs. Okay, now for a question break. What can be seen in the microscopic urinalysis in a patient with pyelonephritis? Pyuria and bacteria are prominent, and hematuria may be observed as well. White blood cell casts, which will only be found if there is involvement of the kidney parenchyma, may also be seen in pyelonephritis. Imaging is not necessary for the diagnosis of UTIs. However, it may be useful in selected circumstances. These include patients who are not responding to treatment after 48 to 72 hours of an appropriate antibiotic therapy, or patients with a known or suspected renal structural abnormality. The most common imaging performed is a CT scan. However, this is usually not necessary, and most concerns can be identified through a renal ultrasound, saving the patient from radiation. CT scans, however, are sensitive at diagnosing structural abnormalities and with IV contrast can detect pyelonephritis or underlying abscesses, renal or perinephric. Pyelonephritis in a CT scan with IV contrast will show a striated parenchymal enhancement, which is an alteration of dark and light lines in the kidney. Renal ultrasound is the preferred imaging method, and especially so for patients who cannot have exposure to a contrast agent or radiation. For example, pregnant patients and patients with underlying chronic kidney disease in whom IV contrast may be hazardous and cause worsening of renal function. For infants and toddlers with recurrent pyelonephritis, a retrograde cystogram may be performed to evaluate for vesicourethral reflux, or VUR. This occurs when urine abnormally refluxes from the bladder up the ureters and into the renal collecting system. 
A catheter is placed into the urinary bladder, and radiographic contrast is instilled to fill the bladder to maximum capacity and create a stimulus for voiding. When the patient voids, fluoroscopic evaluation would show reflux if the contrast moves up into the ureters, that is, if reflux is present. Let's again review with a question. When should you order a radiologic evaluation for a patient with a UTI? When symptoms persist for 48 to 72 hours after initiating antibiotics, or when there is a suspicion that an obstruction or other abnormality might be present. Part 5. How do we manage cystitis and pyelonephritis? Selection of antimicrobial therapy should be tailored to how ill the patient is, history of the patient's success with prior antimicrobial use, recent urine culture results, and or antimicrobial susceptibilities in your local population or hospital. For uncomplicated cystitis, since laboratory evaluation is not necessary, it is typically treated with an antimicrobial therapy designed to cover the most common organisms while tending to antibiotic stewardship and avoiding over-broad-spectrum choices that could lead to development of resistance. Nitroferentoin and trimethoprin sulfamethoxazole are typical first-line agents. Treatment is typically only needed for a three-day course. Patients with complicated UTIs and pyelonephritis should receive empiric treatment with antibiotics while awaiting culture results. Because nitroferentoin does not penetrate the renal parenchyma, and because these patients may have more resistant organisms, empiric treatment may be with more broad-spectrum antibiotics, such as ciprofloxacin or third- or fourth-generation cephalosporins. However, a narrower coverage with trimethoprin sulfamethoxazole is also a good choice. Patients with pyelonephritis and concerns for dehydration or sepsis may require hospitalization and IV antibiotics. Treatment duration is more commonly 7 to 14 days. And now for a question. Why are some of the same first-line agents for uncomplicated cystitis not as effective for pyelonephritis? Drugs like nitroferentoin given for uncomplicated cystitis cannot penetrate the renal parenchyma. For patients at risk for or who have been having recurrent UTIs, they can practice some preventative measures to help reduce the reoccurrence of future UTIs. Some recommend increased fluid intake to increase urination and bladder emptying. A regimen of timed voiding schedules and behavioral modification has proven helpful for toilet training children getting recurrent UTIs because of withholding. Other behavioral strategies such as voiding after vaginal intercourse and wiping anteriorly to posteriorly are typically recommended, though unproven. Antibiotic prophylaxis has been tried as well. However, likewise, the evidence is mixed whether this is an effective measure, and the studies do demonstrate that it promotes bacterial antibiotic resistance. The one exception is that antibiotic prophylaxis with trimethoprin sulfamethoxazole has been proven effective in infants and toddlers with vesicoureteral reflux, so it is routinely considered in this population. Ultimately, the most effective means for prevention is identifying the cause of the recurrence, whether it is functional or structural, and addressing that at the source. And that's all I have today for cystitis and pyelonephritis. Let's see if we've completed our goals for this episode. Can you define and discuss the epidemiology for cystitis and pyelonephritis? Cystitis is an infection of the lower urinary tract or bladder, whereas pyelonephritis is an upper urinary tract infection of the kidneys. 
UTIs are much more common in women than men and may occur in all ages, though with different underlying risks in infants and toddlers, children, young adults, and older adults. Next, can you describe the clinical symptoms of a patient presenting with cystitis or pyelonephritis? Cystitis presents with dysuria, urinary frequency, urgency, suprapubic pain, and or hematuria. Pyelonephritis presents with symptoms of cystitis plus fevers, chills, flank pain, costovertebral angle tenderness, nausea, and or vomiting. Okay, can you summarize the microbiology, etiology, risk factors, and complications for cystitis and pyelonephritis? The most common cause of urinary tract infections is E. coli from fecal flora. Healthy, sexually active women are at risk for cystitis caused by Staphylococcus saprophyticus. And really, any enteric bacterial organism may cause UTIs, though less commonly compared to E. coli. Patients with female genital urinary tracts are more prone to UTIs, as well as those with functional or structural anomalies of bladder emptying and indwelling devices such as catheters. Next, can you outline the diagnostic approach for cystitis and pyelonephritis, including the indications for laboratory and radiologic testing? Uncomplicated cystitis can be diagnosed presumptively by history and physical exam alone. Complicated cystitis and pyelonephritis benefit from diagnostic workup with urinalysis and reflex urine culture. Imaging is reserved for selected patients who are not responding as expected or have a suspected obstruction or anatomic abnormality. Lastly, can you present the treatment options for uncomplicated cystitis and complicated cystitis and pyelonephritis? Uncomplicated cystitis is usually treated with antibiotics such as nitroferentoin or trimethoprin sulfamethoxazole for a three-day course. Complicated cystitis and pyelonephritis are treated with more broad-spectrum antibiotics, including fluoroquinolones or a third-generation cephalosporin, but may also be treated with trimethoprin sulfamethoxazole, typically for a 7- to 14-day course. And that's all I have today on cystitis and pyelonephritis. Let's get back to our patient, Alice, from the beginning of this episode. Thinking back to Alice, who has dysuria and frequency, but no fever, nausea, or vomiting, she wonders if she may have a urinary tract infection. As you prepare to answer Alice's question, you wonder... Other than physical examination, is there any other evaluation needed before confirming the diagnosis? And how will you decide on treatment, and for how long? Alice's suspicions are correct, and she does appear to have the most common signs and symptoms of urinary tract infection, most likely cystitis. Given her past history of diabetes, we would classify her cystitis as complicated cystitis and recommend a clean catch urinalysis with reflex urine culture. If the urinalysis is positive and confirms a UTI, we would treat empirically with antibiotics, possibly trimethoprin sulfamethoxazole for seven days, given that her symptoms are localized to the bladder and not suggestive of pyelonephritis, though you could decide on a more broad regimen with a more extended course as well. A nurse from your team calls Alice in two days and confirms that her urine culture grew E. coli, sensitive to her antibiotic. Alice relays that she feels 100% better and agrees to complete her antibiotic course for the full seven days to ensure she does not develop recurrence.
And that's all I have for today's audio break. Thanks for joining me. If you like this episode, give it a thumbs up or a comment. You can enjoy the full Brick experience online at www.usmle-rx.com, complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. Stay healthy out there. 